You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ukrainian President Zelensky addresses the U.S. Congress as intelligence services, contractors, and hacktivists wage their part of a hybrid war. BlackBerry describes Loki Locker, a new strain of ransomware. CISA and the FBI warn of a Russian cyber campaign. Awais Rashid looks to securing critical infrastructure. Our guest is Derek Mankey of Fortinet with a look at advanced persistent cybercrime. And an alleged advance fee scam artist is arrested in Nigeria. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. First, a brief note about Russia's war against Ukraine. Russia continues its maneuver poor, firepower rich assault on Ukraine's cities. President Putin may have said this morning that all was proceeding according to plan and that victory was in sight, but the facts on the ground seem to belie this. The British Ministry of Defense in yesterday's situation report argued that Moscow is feeling a manpower shortage among its combat forces. Addressing Americans and Friends, Ukrainian President Zelensky spoke to a joint session of U.S. Congress this morning. His general aim was to argue that Ukraine's cause was substantially humanity's cause. His specific aim was to obtain a no-fly zone or, failing that, shipments of combat aircraft and air defense systems. Denouncing Russia's invasion as an assault against basic human values, Mr. Zelensky emphasized that the hopes and aspirations of the Ukrainians who are now under threat are felt and shared by people everywhere— He compared the Russian invasion to the attack on Pearl Harbor and the attacks of 9-11 and asked that Americans consider that Ukraine has been experiencing a Pearl Harbor and a 9-11 every day for the past three weeks. President Zelensky, switching to English, closed with an appeal for a recognition that peace in your country depends upon peace in your neighbor's countries. He said, quote, we want the right to live in peace and to die when your time has come. Ukraine's cause is, he argued, the cause of humanity itself. There may be a benefit to permitting some U.S. companies to continue their Russian operations. The Washington Post says that one reason Apple, Google, and Cloudflare, to take three tech examples, have maintained a presence in Russia, albeit a reduced one, is that the U.S. government wants them to stay there. Their services provide Russian citizens at least some access to unfiltered news. 
Ukraine has arrested an individual identified only as a hacker who was allegedly engaged in helping Russian commanders send instructions to their troops via cellular networks, CNN reports. Investigation of the attack against Viasat's KASAT internet service continues, Reuters says. It's presumed to have been a Russian operation, and while technical details on the incident have been sparsely shared, senior Ukrainian cybersecurity official Viktor Zora said, quote, I believe that's one of their goals, to destroy providers' infrastructure and to prevent the Ukrainian armed force to actually communicate with each other, end quote. Zora also shared his assessment of why Russian cyber operations have been less devastating than was confidently predicted during the run-up to the war. The Washington Post gives Zora's top three reasons for Russian cyber's failure to show up in overwhelming force. First, Russian hackers aren't nimble enough to identify and compromise the most important Ukrainian government and industry targets during fast-moving military operations. Second, Stealthy cyber attacks aren't that useful in comparison to the damage Russian troops are causing with bombs and missiles. And finally, Russian cyber operations are too busy protecting their own digital infrastructure. That digital infrastructure is itself under attack, mostly at a nuisance level, by hacktivists sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause. Zora expressed his appreciation for their efforts against the Russian enemy, but he distanced their activities from Ukrainian government control. BlackBerry this morning announced its discovery of a new strain of ransomware, which it's calling Loki Locker. It targets Anglophone victims who use Windows PCs. It's unrelated to the Loki ransomware variant and to the info-stealer LokiBot. It shares some similarities with the LockBit ransomware, such as registry values and ransom note file names, but it doesn't seem to be its direct descendant. One notable feature of Loki Locker is its self-presentation under an Iranian false flag. CISA and the FBI have issued a new joint advisory on Russian state-sponsored activity. The activity has been in progress for some time, traceable back to May of last year, and seems to bear no immediate connection to Russia's present war against Ukraine, the unnamed threat actors gained network access through exploitation of default MFA protocols and a known vulnerability. That vulnerability was Print Nightmare. CISA advises organizations to take three steps, enforce multi-factor authentication and ensure configuration policies prevent fail-open and re-enrollment problems, disable inactive accounts, and finally, patch systems, especially against known exploited vulnerabilities. And finally, Nigeria's Economic and Financial Crimes Commission has announced the arrest of someone the authorities in a few countries, the U.S. among them, have been interested in talking to for some time. Mr. Asundu Victor Iguilo, who's been wanted by the FBI for a couple of years, was apprehended when the Economic and Financial Crime Commission's Lago Command swooped on him, as they say, Mr. Igualo is accused of money laundering, aggravated identity theft, and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. He and his colleagues are thought to have scammed people out of about $100 million through advanced fee scams, the kind where they ask you to pay some money to set up a big, big, bigger-than-you-can-imagine payday. He'll soon receive his day in court.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. We are familiar with the term APT, Advanced Persistent Threat, typically defined as a stealthy threat actor, typically a nation-state or state-sponsored group which gains unauthorized access to a computer network and remains undetected for an extended period. Derek Mankey is Chief Security Strategist and VP of Global Threat Intelligence at Fortinet's FortiGuard Labs. He and I spoke recently about a category of threat actor his team is calling APCs. Advanced Persistent Cybercrime. Typically, you know, when we look at the vast majority of attacks we're looking at, you know, through 40 Guard Labs in our lens, it's cybercrime, of course, right? That's mostly what we deal with. Ransomware, of course, is, is a household name now today. Largely, though, in the past, those attacks have been more of the blanketed campaigns, right? Trying to land a lot of different targets, see what they can do with it and, and monetize it that way. So we know it's a big business cybercrime. But the disturbing trend we're seeing is this shift to, yeah, exactly what we're calling advanced persistent cybercrime, because it's exactly that. It's just like an APT, but now we're getting the world of cybercrime more heavily focused on that pre-attack phase. Reconnaissance weaponization, targeted attacks. We're starting to see these uh, cybercriminal groups hop on zero-day vulnerabilities and exploits quicker. We're starting to see them do more of the... Uh, uh, reconnaissance and blueprinting and and really move towards targeted attacks. Look no further than some of the high-profile ransomware attacks that we've seen that have been targeted. So, so that's really what this is about. It's categorizing these into this sort of newer form. And 
And um, the other thing, you know, the driver, the underlying driver behind all of that is sophistication. That's what we're seeing. And that's what we have highlighted in our latest threat landscape report. Yeah, it's interesting to me that it, it seems as though we're seeing some of these actors, you know, taking on some of the techniques that we would have previously expected to see from some of those advanced persistent threats and you know, some of those nation state groups. And, and I've seen speculation that perhaps some of these folks are actually, you know, moonlighting, that maybe, you know, by day they're working for some of those organizations and then uh, those organizations uh, look the other way while they do a little bit of privateering. Do you suspect that's part of what we're seeing here? Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually interesting, Dave, because we're, we're working on another project to try to find exactly that. This is actually through the World Economic Forum and the partnership against cybercrime. But we're actually looking at exactly those connections, right? How we can tie the APT groups, which are widely documented and known, specifically, I mentioned MITRE before, and cyber criminal groups. And really what we're already discovering is that there are inherent connections between the two in terms of infrastructure, uh, the the techniques used, and so forth. And it's no surprise, too, that that the cyber criminal aspect of this, the reason they're able to do this now is a result, unfortunately, of years of of making mass profits off cybercrime. So given that this is the reality, what is your advice to those out there who are tasked with defending their networks? What, uh, what words of wisdom do you have for them? Don't be scared. <laughs> I think there, there's a lot of, um, <laughs> there's, there's still a lot of good news happening out there. I mean, you know, first of all, just, you know, be rest assured we're, we're fighting this, this fight ourselves, right? When it comes to partnering and collaborating and working on the disruption piece, trying to really you know, first we need to understand these groups, the ecosystem, the makeup of it first. Then we can actually start, you know, from our perspective, yes, we're a security vendor. So we we create, you know, through our security fabric and 40 Guard Labs, we create all the protection for customers to raise and elevate the security stack. But we're also participating in the disruption campaigns, right? To work with law enforcement, to work with, um, you know, Cyber Threat Alliance, World, World Economic Forum, and so forth, to share threat intelligence and action on it. So, so we're doing that. But, you know, if we look at this from a CISO lens, the other thing you can do here is, is to really look at the, the TTPs, right? That's what we're honing in on now. So I call this high-resolution intelligence, but it's the techniques, tactics, procedures, being able to not boil the ocean because that can be an exercise uh, for eternity. There's millions of these logs coming in a day. But really to look at the relevant techniques that are happening with these APC groups, um, understanding how that applies to your vertical. And then once you have that strategic view, i.e., okay, we know there's 10 different techniques that they're employing in the MITRE attack framework, you can come up with a much more strategic uh, defense for that, identify gaps. That's Derek Menke from Fortinet. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Awais Rashid. He is the director of the Center for Doctoral Training in Cybersecurity at the University of Bristol. Weiss, it's great to have you back. I wanted to touch with you today on critical infrastructure uh, and the security of that. Obviously, this is something that I think has really come to the fore with some of the situations we're seeing uh, around the globe. Indeed. And, you know, you only need to uh, go to major 
major news sites in the in the last few months. Uh, we saw the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline in the U.S. There were also news that an attacker breached a water treatment facility and was only detected because a human noticed that the treatment parameters had been altered. And of course, with the current geopolitical situation, including the conflict in the in the Ukraine, you know, there are echoes of. Uh, what we saw a few years ago, for example, and a cyber attack on a power grid in the Ukraine a few years ago. And this has really brought all of this to the fore and the importance of cybersecurity and securing these critical infrastructures that service large swaths of society. And actually, a compromise to them has a real potential to compromise supply of services or even safety of uh, large populations. And so what are some of the specific things that uh, you and your colleagues there have your eye on? So I think there are a number of things that we need we need to really understand in this regard. These infrastructures tend to be very large. They are historically, they grow organically, and they have a large combination of legacy and non-legacy systems uh, that are in place. And in many cases, it's not really possible to have the best encryption mechanisms or the best access control mechanisms on devices that are meant to be simpler so that they work in very predictable ways and you can prove particular safety properties for them. And now traditionally, they used to be what you would call air-gapped and because they used to be behind barbed wire, but now they're increasingly connected to main office systems because you want to get real-time or you know, near real-time information on the performance of the physical processes so that you can fine-tune them and you can ensure that they are operating optimally, even provide remote maintenance. And that brings with it a lot of different types of, uh, of risks and threats. What about the fact that, you know, many times with some of these critical infrastructure elements, the update cycle on them can be measured in decades. So you can have, you know, modern equipment that's connected to something that might be uh, certainly by IT standards quite old. Absolutely. And it is this really this combination of the old and the new that poses uh, poses serious challenges. But if you think about it, for instance, you're not building a power plant to replace it in two years' time, like we do with our uh, with our mobile phones on a regular basis. The, these infrastructures exist for a very long time. And yes, they do get updates, but the updates are also organic and incremental. So you may potentially have a controller that is running a part of the infrastructure that is, you know, 20 years old, and you don't want to change it to an up-to-date controller because you want to continue to operate that in predictable ways. But there are other parts of the infrastructure that are using newer controllers and newer up-to-date devices. And it's the it's providing security in this really, really complex setting where you have potentially less secure devices and systems interfacing with more secure devices and systems, interfaces with what we would consider regular IT, like your you know Microsoft Windows and your Linux operating systems and so on. But equally, if you, for example, think about you know, maritime and shipping systems and things like that. Again, they are built and ships are not kind of, you know, replaced and refitted every year. These systems are in place for 10, 20, 30 years time. And when we think about securing them, we need to almost really anticipate where the future challenges are going to come from and how we are actually going to mitigate against those future security challenges. And is that where it seems that we're headed here? I mean, this the natural um, sort of disconnect between the two things. I mean, IT systems get updated regularly, operational technology not necessarily. Uh, is that sort of uh, leapfrogging of, of of different technologies that that's the shape of things to come? 
Yes, and it, it is the inevitable nature of these kind of infrastructures. But there are two things to bear in mind. You actually don't want to be live updating your critical infrastructure all the time because you want mm. that predictability and you want to make sure that it's not going to keel over because, because of an update. But there is even a bigger challenge because these, these infrastructures grow organically. Many a times you don't know exactly what you've got. Okay, because, you know, they they are uh, distributed across many, many sites. There are lots and lots of different devices. You may have acquired some infrastructure that gets integrated into your network. So one of the biggest challenges, how do you actually find what you have? And then once you know what you have, how do you know that if you're going to run your standard kind of asset scanning or vulnerability scanning tools against that kind of infrastructure is not going to bring the infrastructure down? So one of the things that we are doing at the moment is really building a very systematic analysis of various, for example, asset scanning tools that are out there, both free and commercial ones, to try and understand what their capabilities are, what kind of information can they readily provide to infrastructure owners, and how they can actually guide them in understanding where the risks and challenges for their infrastructures might might arise, and where might be the potential pathways that an attacker might take to compromise the integrity of the infrastructure in the sense of it operating, not just in the sense of information integrity. All right. Well, Professor Awais Rashid, thank you for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Pearl Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.